Back in episode 12, we say something to the effect of, you can't shoot your cookbook on your iPhone. Today, our guest is proving us wrong. Welcome to Everything Cookbooks, the podcast for writers, readers, and cooks. This is Kristen Donnelly, and I'm here today with Molly Stevens. Hey, Molly. How's it going? Good. I'm wondering, have you ever thought about shooting your own cookbook? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, I mean, I can barely shoot food photos for my Instagram account, but um, <laughs> that is not in my wheelhouse. <laughs> and of course, it's been a while. Like, it's things have changed so much, but it's not just taking the pictures. There's so much more to it. Yeah. Like people, I, I just had a conversation with my own agent recently who was like, I need to get on one of these photo shoots because they sound like such productions. Like there's so many, like, why do we need so many people? Why, right. like, why did they shoot so many dishes or how is it so hard? I mean, you've been doing a lot with your newsletter. Like I feel like in the past year or so, your food photography, yeah. you're doing a lot more of it. So would you ever consider doing the photos for your whole book? I don't know. I mean, I, I do shoot some photos for my newsletter called Mission Dinner, but I still feel like that they're not there, you know, yeah. that they're fine photos for an email newsletter, but they're not necessarily book quality. So I'm really excited to talk to our guest today, Susan Spungen. She's the author of the new cookbook, Veg Forward, but she's so much more. Yeah. She was the founding food editor at Martha Stewart Living, and she's an accomplished food stylist for many, many books, many movies, um, and she's also a recipe developer. She has written several other books, but this is the first one. She has photographed herself, and she photographed it on her iPhone. Amazing. Which we got to talk about. Yeah. So let's get into it with Susan. Welcome to Everything Cookbook, Susan. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. As you know, I'm a big, big fan. <laughs> oh, that's so nice to hear. Yeah, thank you. Is. Thank you. So we're here to talk about your brand new cookbook. But first, we want to basically take our listeners back and get to know you a little bit. And you are the founding food editor of Martha Stewart Living. And you do all the things in food, but you're probably most well known for your styling. That's true. And so I'm curious. <laughs> Yeah. How did that how did that happen for you? And what drew you to styling? I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I think part of it is that during my tenure at Martha, I was considered like a behind the scenes person because it was before social media. So people didn't really know what I did, I think. And, you know, I mean, I ran a big department. I ran a test kitchen. I had opportunities to do so many things within the company. I sort of started out wanting to be a food stylist. That's the funny thing. And that's what led me to my job at Martha. That's a pretty long story. But I was actually actively trying to get out of the food industry. So out of service and catering and restaurants, I was trying to get out of that and into styling, which seemed very appealing to me. And then what happened was I ended up sort of tripping over the job at Martha not, I guess there are no accidents really, but it seemed sort of accidental and they were just beginning. So I ended up getting a job as the food editor, which in the beginning was mostly styling because they needed someone mm. to just execute the shoots. And wow, we're doing this story on Provence and Quag. I know that sounds, that's so Martha, right? <laughs> Martha Stewart living. So we need you to, you know, shop for everything and bring it to the shoot. Like it was very, very scrappy in the beginning. So a lot of what I did was just styling, writing up the recipes, creating recipes, being at the shoot, making sure everything was happening. Cause it was very, it was only quarterly when I first started. And so there was kind of enough time to, you could do everything almost yourself with a little right. bit of help. It right. wasn't like we were churning out monthly issues. So I got to try a little bit of everything and then I grew into the role. You know, I had some managerial experience in my restaurant world experience, but I had no editorial background. I had never worked at a magazine, but most of the people who worked there also did not ever work at a magazine either. So we were kind right. of making it up as we went along. You had kitchen experience. Oh, yes. Tom kitchen experience. Yeah. It's interesting. You said that you wanted to get into styling and I'm thinking back and 
food styling wasn't that well known as a, it was mostly schlepping is it was my well, memory. No, it wasn't mostly schlepping, but the, the industry was much smaller and there were very few people and it was hard to know about it again before the internet before social mm -hmm. media. And the way I found out about this was there was an article on the front of the living section, which is now the cooking section of the New York Times, only in print, of course. You can still look it up. This article exists. I think it was called How to Make the Basil Blush. And so it was a story in the Times about being a food stylist. And I was like, wow, this sounds like perfect for me. I had gone to art school. So I had like the oh. visual, not just the visual background, but the desire to be creative. And I had the food background. So I was like, wow, I, this sounds like a great way for me to put together my visual sense with my food background. And also I was like, wow, they make so much money, which back <laughs> then they did. And want to know something? The rates have hardly changed since this was, I'm not kidding you, like 1986 or something like that. Oh my gosh. You can get one of those time capsule articles where yeah. you actually see the, look it up. It's, it's funny. And it was all about mostly Rick Ellis, who was still maybe working in the industry and a couple other people. And I was just like, $400 a day, sign me up. And I really wanted to, I just thought I would enjoy it mm -hmm. a lot. And, you know, I do enjoy it actually. And I, I don't do it as much anymore. The pandemic changed things and I've been working on my book and I'm sort of transitioning out of that. I probably shouldn't say that in public, but I've transitioned a little bit out of styling as an everyday job. Like for clients. Yeah, for clients. You mentioned that it was sort of this like secret career in a way. Yes. What are some of the other ways it's evolved? Well, there's so many more outlets that I think because of the internet, you know, back then it was a couple print magazines and, and whatever ad work there was mm -hmm. and maybe television spots too, but there were just very many fewer stylists working and it was just a much more closed industry. There's just way more, much younger people doing it now who are just interested. It used to be, you had to assist, like it was like a real apprenticeship. You had to assist for a long time and then you could go out on your own. And I, I just think it's really different now. There are so many stylists and there's so much stuff on social and there's just way more applications for it. And then lots of people who say they're a stylist who really just do their own Instagram. That doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily make them a food stylist. Right. You might be styling your own food for your social media, but yeah. 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 So the yeah. lines, I think, have been kind of blurred on what a food stylist is as well, because if you've never worked for a demanding client and have to, um, you know, make a lot of things happen, you know, that that's when it's hard when you have to make maybe a product that's not pretty look good uh, when you <laughs> right. have to you know, make food sort of perform, behave on camera for motion. There's a lot of very difficult uh, challenges that one uh, can come across as a professional food stylist that you don't get when you're just styling something for your own Instagram. Yeah. And that doesn't mean those people aren't talented at all. Mm -hmm. Lots of them are. And many of them have become food stylists, but they are learning on the job. Yeah. yeah, it's so interesting. And I think we could talk for a really long time about food stylists, yeah. but I, we are here to talk about your new book, yes. which is really beautiful. So just before we leave the stylist thing, these are 120 or some original recipes. And so mm -hmm. how does being a stylist first really affect your recipe development process? I think that it definitely does because I do think visually, but it's not... I like to think that it's equal parts, you know, recipe, creativity, uh, food ideas and presentation. I mean, I do think about things visually, but it's really simultaneous. It's, so it's very hard to describe because I'm often inspired by color. Sometimes I'll put ingredients together because of their colors. And if they don't taste good, okay, I'm not going to do that. It has to make sense. It all has to kind of work. But I do sometimes, even when I'm shopping, think, oh, wow, butternut squash and yellow cauliflower, that would be good together. And, you know, things like that. Like I just sometimes get inspiration from color that does end up in my recipes for sure. I mean, there's a few in the book that I could point to. And if something is really, really a dud, I will move on. If some visually, I mean, either way, if it doesn't taste good or if it doesn't look good, if, I feel like there's always kind of a way to make it look good. That's the challenge. 
I had the luxury of being able to kind of do that on my own time, which I know you're, that's probably one of your ne- next questions um, in this book. So if I didn't like the way something came out, I could reshoot it because I was working on my own. A lot of times yeah. when you style either your own book, which I've done in the past with a team, or you're hired to do a cookbook project, generally there's no time for reshoots because you know, you're know you shooting 10 to 12 or more recipes per day, and there's a certain number of days. I mean, unless things really go sideways, uh, there's not reshoots. I think Probably you'd agree with that, but who knows? Sometimes people reserve a day for covers and reshoots, which is a nice luxury to have. But there's never something I don't regret when I style my own cookbook (laughs) or even somebody else's. I think, wow, if I had the chance, I would definitely do it differently. And I wish I had done this or I wish I had done that. I mean, they're always regrets for me. Yeah, but not now. I mean, you don't have to talk well, about them. Well, a few. <laughs> <laughs> we fewer, won't ask about those. Fewer, fewer, fewer. Yeah. Let's talk about this photography because you shot this book entirely by yourself, right? Yes, which I want to point out that many people who have a blogging background have done yes, the same thing. But you also did it on your iPhone. <laughs> yes, I did. And I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm the actual first because I actually heard Raquel Pelzel talking about a book that she co-wrote where the author shot it on this iPhone. But I want to say that maybe it wasn't quite as visual as this book. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, there are people who have tried different ways to get around the huge burden of financing a cookbook shoot, Mm -hmm. you know, and anything can be done. That's the thing. It's like, and that's, what's great about your podcast too, to hear other points of view and, and know that like a lot of, I was listening to your podcast all through the process of making this book. And so it was just like hanging on every word because you don't, it's a very solitary pursuit. And this, for me, this book was even more solitary because of the way I shot it and produced it. But you're wondering, am I doing this right? Has anyone else ever done this? Now I know that people don't go around shooting their books on their iPhones. But I thought, you know, I've gotten pretty good at taking photos for my Instagram and they're all in my iPhone. And I know that the iPhone has really good resolution. So I actually asked Andrea Gentle, who's one half of Gentle and Hired. They shoot lots and lots of cookbooks. I've worked with them on cookbooks and other things for many, many years. I asked Andrea because I was like, you know, I'm going to ask a photographer if I can do this. Someone who knows me and like, should I do it? Could I do it? Would it be okay? So I asked her and she just gave me very encouraging words. I got to plug her book, Cooking with Mushrooms. She's a multi-hyphenate as well. So she just wrote a cookbook, which is amazing. And she said, oh, yes, it would be totally awesome. And the resolution is there. You should totally do it. It would be a great project. So that was really all I needed to hear. And then I also ran it by my agent, of course. And I had it in my mind that I wanted to do it this way. Um, But when the book was acquired, of course, I ran it by the editor. This part of your proposal was that you would shoot. I'm not sure. I think I might. I have to look to see if it was in my actual proposal. If it wasn't in my actual proposal, I brought it up very quickly after we made the deal because I could have hired a team if they wanted me to. I just, I wanted to do it. So I think, I don't think it was in the proposal to be honest. But it was early on in the project. Oh yeah. The the proposal was this veg forward, a very, you know, this is the book. It's a book about vegetables in the center of the plate. And then it's interesting. I just, Chris and I haven't really talked about this, but we do talk a lot about how vegetables offer so much visually. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they do. I can see how it's a natural idea that would come from, oh, it's a veg vegetable center of the plate, the colors, immediately someone like you who gets so lit up by colors. Right. But not just the colors, also the immediacy of running to the farm stand and getting this gorgeous bunch of beets and then shooting it right then and there when I got home. So I was able to capture, and actually we had to, this is another story, but we had to, I had to fight for some extra pages to actually make room for some of this photography, which was these sort of vegetable portraits that I had been doing all along. And I hadn't really thought through, well, are these all going to fit in the book? And then there wasn't a lot of room for them. And we had to fight for some extra pages, which we got just enough to put that in. Cause I felt to me, it's really inspiring to see all of those things. And they're just such, you know, wonders of nature. And I wanted to, to capture that and capture sort of my love 
for, for these things and the, the, my love for their beauty. I mean, I get super excited when I see a fresh anything, a fresh vegetable. And I mean, you'll see in the book all the things that I that I captured, whether it's a tomatillo or a bunch of scallions or an heirloom tomato. I mean, every single one is so beautiful. And I wanted to capture that in the in the book. And I did. You have two kitchens, right, that you often work from. So where, were you shooting oh, yeah. in one kitchen or? During the pandemic, we mostly moved to our house in East Hampton, which had been mostly a weekend house. I always tried to spend a lot of time here because I got to kind of build my dream kitchen here. So in the city, I just have a normal small kitchen, which I worked out of for many years, developing recipes and prepping shoots and whatever needed to be done. I worked in, it's a pretty functional kitchen, but once I had this kitchen, I didn't really want to be anywhere else. And so I just loved being in this kitchen and also having such close access to amazing farm stands. And our CSA Quail Hill Farm is right down the road where we go and pick our own stuff. And it's just really inspiring to be in nature every day. So that really, I think, also inspired and informed the book. And so what was the setup like for shooting? Was there a certain <laughs> window that you're always going to? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, there are a couple windows. And, and I was also one one thing I wanted to say is that I'm sure there are going to be people who are going to hear this podcast and say, oh, my gosh, I'm doing that, too. But I need to tell you, you need to know what you're doing yeah. a little bit. You have to know how to find light. Also, I would suggest to anybody that wants to do this, either they do put it possibly in their proposal or like I did come up with a little sneak attack and find out. But you have to give your editor and maybe the art director, if the publisher, some samples yeah. of what your work would look like. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to shoot my book on my iPhone. It has to be suitable for printing and publication and it has to look good. So you have to kind of you know, know what you're doing. But other than that, the resolution, like, like Andrea said, is there. So it is possible. And I also worked with someone who was the digital tech on my book before this one, Open Kitchen. And she worked with Gentle and Hires at that time as their digital tech. And so I hired her to do the file management, mm. color correction, Got it. make sure that I wasn't making any mistakes as we went along. I didn't just have these all on my camera roll. She was keeping track of them. And uh, we did a workaround to have raw files so that she could manipulate them better and make sure they were, you know, the best resolution they could be. So that's cool. I just you don't want to come to the end of something like this and turn in the art and have somebody say, no. Yeah. yeah. I was actually <laughs> right. wondering that about the file management. That is interesting to know, because that there was somebody along the way who could give you some feedback. Absolutely. Yeah. And also because I was doing this alone, I didn't have the normal team. I didn't have a prop stylist. I was the prop stylist. I didn't have a food stylist. I was the food stylist. I didn't have a top photographer. I was the photographer. Yeah. So it was nice to have someone who I knew who had also worked on my last book and also who was a vegetarian mm. um, to look at the files with me as I did them. And if there was ever, there was never a mistake. I mean, one thing I always, always checked was slide that thing on the top of the <laughs> the photo app where you can blow it up 300% because I always wanted to make sure that I was sharp. Mm -hmm. It was super important that you'd be sharp and you don't need to use a tripod. Again, these are things you have to really keep in mind. You've got to make sure your lens is clean at all times. I had a microfiber because, you know, here I was like using my phone for a timer and, and holding it with my greasy hands. And then I had to make sure that the lens was crystal clean every single time I was shooting. So it was very low tech. And I, I like that it was low tech. I've done a lot of books for, for other people and myself. And I like working with a team, but for this book, it just made sense to do it this way. I wanted to do it as I went along so that it had a sort of diaristic feel. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's so fascinating. But it, even in the introduction, you make a point to tell the reader that you shot this on your iPhone and why. And so you use the word diaristic so you could shoot as you go along. And mm -hmm. so if your photo shoot is scheduled in the middle of the winter, as I've had several, you're not scrambling to find mm -hmm. tomatoes that look halfway right. decent. So, right. But it's also interesting. You talk about minimal or low tech, but you have propped and I mean, noticing the surfaces that you've used. I mean, these look like standard cookbook photos. So are those props just from your 
I have a collection. I didn't rent. I did buy a few things for this particular project because I didn't want to um, have all the same props that I had in my last book, which a lot of those were mine as well. Mm. So I just like collecting things. And also I use them for my newsletter and my Instagram. And, and I have these big shelves that I can populate with stuff. I have, I'm in my house, so I have some storage space. And I did have surfaces. I had some surfaces made for my last book. And I used a lot of the same ones, actually. I just have those. And then even during the pandemic, I was doing some shoots here with a photographer. And I have everything here. And I also really love collecting objects. So, so I approach each shot as I would if I was on a regular shoot, but I'm just wearing all the hats. I was wondering what that process is. When do you decide that you're going to shoot? Well, okay. So every once in a while, I would just get it on the first try, <laughs> meaning I was developing the recipe. And some of the recipes are quite simple because the recipe, I can think of one, it's the grilled cabbage, where it just looked great. I mean, I just plated it. That's the Savoy cabbage wedges. Yeah. Yes. It's beautiful. So that was the first time that I made the recipe. And I just put it down and I shot it. And that's the shot that's in the book. Other things, especially things that are more complicated, like maybe the enchiladas or a lasagna or, you know, things that are classically not as sort of uh, self-styling. <laughs> mm-hmm. I had to, you know, work on the recipe for a while. And then when I got the recipe to a good place, then I would say, okay, now I'm going to shoot the enchiladas. So I'm going to really think about what are the props. And I often would set up the props like you would on a regular shoot for any shot. I would do a setup, take a, a quick snap and see if I liked the way the props were looking before I would actually cook anything. You know, make sure that the light was good or if it was a good day to shoot. Some, sometimes if it was very gloomy, there wasn't enough light. But mostly I was using this north window. I don't know. There's just something magical about that window. I, I just can't even tell you. Yeah. You have to, if you want to shoot even for your own Instagram, you got to look around your house and find the window that makes your food look good. It's so true. <laughs> I need it's to so spend true. more time with that because I have two windows. I don't, I'm, I don't have the same visual sense you do, Susan. That's what well, I'll come over and help <laughs> yeah. you. Your experience being on shoots, like that idea where mm-hmm. you, uh, we, you know, Chris and I have both been there where you, you make the set, you put the plate down, you put the props yeah. down, the bowl, whatever it is, and there's no food there. And you spend some time looking at that before yeah. the food either gets fired or finished or right. you've started, whatever it is. And that to me is, makes a big difference in how these photos came to be for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, because I was doing everything myself, I want to make sure I was ready for the last minute food stuff, especially if it's something that isn't going to hold on yeah, set very long. Got a runny egg. And nothing a- does. Look, everything looks better fresh. Yeah, runny egg, perfect example. So I wanted to make sure that I knew what everything else was. And sometimes I would change it and sometimes I would reshoot it. There's a couple things I shot, you know, three or four times <laughs> because I just wasn't happy with it. So I would keep going back. But yeah, I would sort of have an idea of like what was the plate I wanted to use and what was the surface I wanted to use. And and then, you know, maybe I mean, some of them are really simple with not a lot of props. Other ones, there are more props. So I would get all of that kind of kind of organized beforehand. So all natural light, you didn't use additional lighting? All, well, natural light, yes. And not, but no, no artificial lighting. But I do manipulate a little bit by reflecting or using a black card or a white card if I need it, Mm -hmm. um, or a scrim to cut down sometimes on the light. Either to bounce or to diffuse or to... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah. sometimes, but not like a ton. But yeah, I have like a little thing that holds the scrim up. And, you know, I I have a few like basic things. I actually bought this big scrim gym, but then I never used it. Is time of day when you shoot important to you? Like I've talked to some photographers who are like, I always shoot before 11 a.m. Well, no, I'm not that specific. But in the winter, it's harder just because you can't start anything after three. Mm-hmm. So right. that's yeah. to me, that's the most challenging. The window that I like, it's worse in the summer because I feel like it's more hot. Mm-hmm. Like there's more light sure. reflecting around. Yeah. It's sort of softer in the winter. And then I have this one window over here on the opposite side of the house. It's got Western light. And you'll see in the book, there's some pictures that have this sort of like more hard light. So I did both because I didn't want everything to have the same look. So 
sometimes I use that hard light because I like the way it looked. And that was sort of like the very end of the day, sort of this raking light with shadows. And it's like the grilled cherry tomatoes with the yogurt. and uh, mint. Yes. The grilled cherry tomatoes is one. There's quite a few, like if you see light coming through the glass of rosé or like the soca with mm-hmm. the, the sheet pan roasted ratatouille or the uh, daikon salad, there's a, uh, the citrus salad. There's a whole bunch that have this like harder raking light. And that's the other side of the house. And that window doesn't look so great in the middle of the day. And my kitchen, which is beautiful to be in, has so many windows and skylights that the light is just not good in here. It's just too even. Mm -hmm. Because the thing about why that bedroom light is so good is that it's like Johnny Miller a photographer I work with, he called it like barn light. Like you've, you're inside a dark barn and you just open up one door. And then so you have this one light source, which can be really dramatic. Mm-hmm. So that's why that particular room works for me. And I keep the other shade down. So I just have one single light source when I'm in that room. So 120 recipes, and you were trying to do it sort of as the vegetables were in season. And were you able to take a year to do this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a year. And and what was the schedule like? Well, the schedule was that I've done enough books and book projects that I know that you have to do a certain... I, I tell myself I have to do a certain amount each week. And I try to stick to that because I don't like getting in that last minute crush. It's like, because most people don't ever understand how much work it is to produce a cookbook who haven't done it before, but I've done it. So I know that even when you plan ahead, there's still stuff because you want to redo it or look at it again or whatever it is. But I tried to stay very active through the season. I got, I think when I got the deal, it was the spring of 2021. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to catch asparagus on the, on the other side. I'm not going. So it was really dictated by, I I wasn't ready to just start saying, Oh, I'm going to quickly do asparagus because they're in season. I knew I'd have chance at the end of the process to come back to spring. So I started with summer and then I went summer, fall, winter, and then spring. So I really was letting the season dictate which recipes I was working on and then photographing. That makes sense because summer is so fat and abundant and like the tomatoes hang for a while that, you know, oh where you gosh. are, the pepper, you, you, you know, I don't want to say it lasts, but it, it's abundant for a while. And then fall and winter, of course, are a little, especially winter, a little more static. You can, you can do cabbages yeah. for a long time. Um, and yeah. the, but spring is so ephemeral that you really kind of want to be, you want to be in the get zone. Your rhythm up yeah. and be in the zone. And yeah. so by the time the asparagus and the peas hit, you, you're ready to to go and you figured out all your... Yeah. So actually, I think I did develop a bunch of the recipes for spring, but I didn't shoot them Mm -hmm. because I just, Mm -hmm. I wanted to see how the rest of the book shaped up before I committed to what the spring recipes were going to be. So I definitely took advantage of what was still around and peas were one of them. And I also like frantically was freezing things that could freeze, Mm -hmm. um, like peas, for instance, I was shelling peas and freezing them because I'm going to need those later. And so there were, you know, there were things that I didn't shoot exactly in season, but I, I still had the in season. I still have some corn in my freezer. Do you? That's awesome. <laughs> but it's so interesting because you, you, when you do a seasonal book like this, you want to balance across the book, of course, mm-hmm. and you want balance within the chapters. So even though you're focused on an individual season at a time, you need to be thinking, okay, if I've got a frittata here, I'm not going to have right. a, necessarily have a frittata in each season. So it's right, and it's and it's hard, of course, to balance it all out. You you're thinking about one thing, and then someone else comes along and says, "Well, I'm putting." all the main courses first. And I'm like, why? I wasn't even thinking about that, really. <laughs> <laughs> and then putting things together that I was like trying to keep apart. <laughs> oh, right. That can be so torturous sometimes. Exactly. Because there's always another way to look at the balance. So Right. Like it, as opposed to going through spring vegetable by vegetable, they're going to go through it by parts of the meal. And then you might end up with asparagus back to back. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's tricky. Yeah. It's tricky. It's tricky. House of cards. <laughs> I call it a house of it's cards. It's a puzzle. It yeah. is definitely a puzzle. It always is. But I, I do want to be known as more than just a pretty face. So. <laughs> <laughs> I hope people really love cooking out of this book. Yeah. I made, um, there's sweet potatoes with nori last night, the smashed sweet potatoes. <gasps> yeah. So good. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
oh. sweet potatoes. Yeah, so good. They're so, that's so simple. That's actually very emblematic, I think, of some of the kinds of recipes that I wanted to have in the book. I mean, some of them are what you might call like stupid simple, right? Like that one. But I wanted there to be something that maybe you hadn't thought of or a flavor combination. Like a lot of them came out short and simple, yeah, but still really different and special. There aren't a lot of Almost I, actually every recipe except for the last one in the book, which was the bear recipe of the book, the apple confit cake. Oh, um, every single one is on a single page. So I was proud of that. And hopefully it's not too small <laughs> to read because that, that's what people will complain about if, if the type is a little smaller than they want it to be um, so that everything fits on a page. I'm just really happy about that because I think it's a real advantage for the reader to to have that. Yeah, we were actually yeah. wondering about that, um, if it was intentional to try to get everything on one page. Not really, not really. I mean, I think that uh, throughout my career, I've just gotten so much better at sort of streamlining mm-hmm. recipes and, you know, cutting the fat, <laughs> so to speak. I think I used to get a little more, I don't know if convoluted is the right word, but you know, you have a lot of, like when I worked at Martha Stewart Living, there were a lot of different objectives that you had to fulfill. I mean, and so this is really, you know, it had to be beautiful. It had all these things that it had to be. And you know, from working in editorial, how that is. But doing a book, the beauty of doing a book is that it's really your, it's really your thing. And Mm -hmm. you can do what you want to do and do it your way. I really feel I've done that in this book. And I really wanted to get also as close as I could to the way I actually cook. One thing you haven't talked that much about on the podcast is, you know, getting conceptual, like you have to be conceptual, you have to sit down and make a list and think, oh, this would be good. And that would be good. And this sounds good. But what's actually good when you're in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. working, Mm -hmm. cooking. Yep. Yep. So I tried to bridge that gap little by little throughout my sort of solo career, I guess I should say, and get a a little bit less conceptual and more practical. Mm -hmm. It makes total sense. And Susan, one of the things that I think the Boston Globe describes the book as stylish and practical. (laughs) And listening to what you're saying now, I'm hearing that and, and seeing that and looking at this book. And I think one of the things that really works in this is in the intro, you say that a recipe is a guide, not a god. Right. And you you encourage cooks to use their intuition and you address head on. One of the big bugaboos in recipe development, especially, is that vegetables come in like what is a bunch of kale? Yeah. Yeah. What is a you yeah. know zucchini and how one carrot can be so different from another. Yeah. And you address this and how do you decide to deal with that like during development? Because that's a tricky one. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do, of course, uh, you know, preface it by saying, like, use your judgment. Right. <laughs> because I remember like the famous kale salad that I did for fun of tea, Epicurious, that many people have made. I would always, well, I would read, com- I read comments on my recipes that have been published, whether it's for NYT cooking or Epicurious. I've always read the comments because I'm so curious to see what people say. The kale salad, which is one of their most popular recipes, they, a lot of people say, oh, it was way too much dressing. And it's like, yeah, but you don't know. I mean, don't just put the whole amount of dressing on. Like, I mean, so, I mean, I think that's what in, in particular inspired the kale comment because it's like I said, your bunch of kale might be half the size of mine or twice the size of mine. And then I also, through subsequent recipe tests, I'll note the differences. I weigh everything. I try to give cut measurements where possible. I mean, leeks are a perfect example. If you cut a leek, you might get from one single leek, you might get like a cup or four cups of sliced leeks out of a leek, depending on whether the white part is this long (laughs) or that long. Or whether the leek is thick as your thumb or thick as... Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's so many variations. So when I can, I, I try to give like the the store bought weight, throw it on that scale in the store. Like if it's the apples for the apple confit cake, I'm very specific because I tested that recipe so many times. And, you know, I know that you're going to have too many if you buy like six big apples. So make sure it's two pounds of apples, whatever it is. And, you know, you I want people to use that scale in the grocery store. I don't know <laughs> if they do. Not the most accurate, but it's, you know, it's, it gives it you an idea. You, like in the ballpark. Yeah. And, and every store has one. I bet most people don't even notice that. I know. We've joked we think only recipe developers use them because <laughs> <laughs> I'm always there yeah. <laughs> and you know I'm a very good recipe tester too 
and she puts all my recipes through their paces and I trust her. She worked on my last book and I worked with her at a magazine I used to be a contributor at. So I just use one tester. I don't crowdsource. I pay someone (laughs) because, you know, a lot of people think recipe testing is recipe tasting. They're not really, they don't really understand what you have to do. I'll test recipes for you. And they think that means I'll try it. I'll taste it. You know, and it's more than that. I mean, you need to, you need to know what happens in someone else's kitchen with, you know, someone else's size of their artichokes, whatever it is. So, I mean, that, that, that goes without saying we all know we need good testers, but I just tried, Molly. I just did my best. Well, no, I think you did a really nice job. And I also noticed that in a case where like the the roasted asparagus, it, it's not it doesn't really matter. You're gonna end up with right. more or less. So you were exactly. you were I don't say loose with your instructions where you needed to be and then more precise right. where you but encouraging people to understand. And I find like right. sodium content differs for in certain vegetables too, like celery mm-hmm. sometimes. Yeah, sure. And moisture content as well yeah. is another moisture, thing that's especially. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. But you're yeah. right, when it doesn't matter, I'm not so specific. Right. Because right. I want people to have that freedom to make decisions on their own yeah. and develop their intuition. I think we all know that developing intuition as cook only comes with practice, like pretty much with anything. So, you know, the recipes where it's going to make a difference, where the amount of salt is integrated into a sauce or, or something that you can't taste because it's raw, whatever it is, then I try to give specific amounts. But if I'm telling you to roast vegetables, I don't give you a salt and pepper amount. I hate when give an amount for pepper. I use a pepper grinder all day long. I'm not going to yeah, sit there and grind pepper. I haven't <laughs> done it. I do it on a piece of wax paper and then funnel it into a... Sure, if I'm recipe testing for someone else. Or if I need a lot of pepper, like maybe it's a brine turkey, whatever it is, then I'll use my spice grinder or whatever. But generally speaking, I want to trust people to pick up the salt and the pepper and just put it on themselves. However, I will warn them on, like, say, the asparagus because it happened to me. I had these pencil asparagus mm-hmm. and I salted them kind of liberally and by the time they were off the grill oh, yeah. they were so salty because they had shrunk into right. nothing so, right. so I weave my little warnings in because it happened to me mm-hmm. um, mm. and it could happen to you it's like some people like to go crazy like oh let me salt this up yeah <laughs> that's where the moisture makes such a difference right it's like juicier asparagus you probably wouldn't have tasted that much salt so. <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah. you know the real skinny little pencil ones like they just were like whoa those are way too salty I should have held back. Something I really wanted to ask you about, Susan, is I remember on Instagram, I think in your stories, you did a poll or some kind of questions (gasps) about your pantry section. And you said, like, there's some heated opinions out there. And in the book there is a pantry section. So what happened? Oh, yes. Well, what happened was, and and I think, you know, it's one of the really fun things about social media is that you can crowdsource. I was in the middle of of doing my pantry section, or actually, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> 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 I was at that point where I was like, do I'm I need done. to do this? Do I really need this? So I, I put a poll up on my Instagram stories, and, you know, it really got people talking. And I mean, I don't have time. I I could have brought some of them up, but basically the consensus was, yes, I read it. I need it. I want it. I want to know. And a lot of people said, and this is the one thing that I found surprising. And when I say a lot, okay, if three or four people out of the people I polled said the same thing, I consider that kind of a lot. Mm -hmm. But they said it's something they look at before they ever buy the book. And that was Uh, when they really sealed the deal because they said, I want to know, is this going to call for all kinds of quote unquote weird ingredients that I don't have or I don't want to buy. So is this a book that is going to fit in with the pantry I already have? Or am I interested in in these ingredients? You know, lots of people said it just gave them a really good idea of what the book was going to be and and that they also just wanted to know, well, what what's unique to my mm-hmm. recipes and my cooking? They want to know that up front. So um there were only really very few people who 
well, actually, was it 50? I think when I asked them, it was almost 50-50. But the comments that I got from the people that wanted it convinced me. Not that many people commented who didn't want got it. it. Mostly the people who who said things were who sent me long and passionate uh, messages <laughs> about the pantry section. So it was, you know, it was the push I needed. It also, I think it helped me sort of shape that section as well. So hearing what people wanted. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting that the people who don't want it will just not read it. Whereas exactly. the people who want it, the opinionated, the more passionate. We just had this conversation um, with Andrea, mm-hmm. how, you know, we're cookbook geeks. We love the pantry section. Right. Well, I love the title of yours. You say a short opinionated guy because it tells me what kind of came up with that. Oh, nice. (laughs) Your editor, Rux Martin. That's great. But it it tells us what kind of cook you are. Mm -hmm. It even says what's in your fridge door. That's part of this. It's really interesting. Because I I think my pantry, the fridge door is a huge part of it. I mean, that's where most of my stuff is. And so that's where I, I like I said, this is where flavor lives because it is. It's like all the hot tosses and the chili crisps and the harissa and Worcestershire. There's all kinds of things on the fridge door that I use on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And that is sometimes where I'm like, hmm, I need to balance the flavors of this dish. That's where I go. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm, of course. Then another section of your book that stood out to me is the essentials chapter. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious when that came about in the production or the creation of the book. So the editor that acquired my book, unfortunately, did not make it to the end of the process. Um, that's the second time that's happened to me. <laughs> but from the very beginning, and this, this came from her, Andrea Fleck Nisbet was the acquiring editor. She didn't get to see the project through, but she was really excited about it. Obviously, she acquired the book and from the very beginning said she wanted me to include what she called foundational recipes. And she just kept stressing that. And I thought, all right, I'm not sure I would have you know, thought about that as much if she hadn't said that. So from the very beginning, I had a list going for my TOC about what these foundational recipes would be. And I liked it. Like there are things that don't even have vegetables in them, like focaccia, for instance, mm-hmm. or fresh pasta. So a lot of them, they're really um, complementary to the recipes in the book. Sometimes they are truly foundational, like the fresh pasta, which, you know, or tortillas. There are things I really want people to make. I want them to try it. Actually, Rux wanted me to cut the tortillas. And I said, no, 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 no. No, I was telling Kristen, I I sort of, (laughs) my tortilla press has been collecting dust because I sort of given up a few years ago. And now I'm like, I'm going to pull it out and start again because because Susan inspired me. Any vegetable. It could be a taco. So yeah. if you and, and not just a taco, a special taco. Right. So you have to make tortillas for that to happen. Yeah. And I love making them and I just think they are hundred percent worthwhile yeah. to make. Yeah. So if there are things like that where I just feel strongly about wanting people to uh, make something, then it's in that section. It seems to me that now that the book ended up where all the recipes fit on one page, all your sub recipes are here, like the tomato water, which that I've never frozen the tomatoes for tomato water. So that is like so smart. Yeah, so smart. Well, I really researched a lot of different ways to do it. And it's usually like a little esoteric, let's say, and also you know, what I realized, like everyone's like, you have to get the tomatoes and make the tomato water all in the same day, blah, blah, blah. And I realized, you know, you could throw all your tomato scraps in the freezer and then it's make brilliant. tomato water. Um, I actually made it after I in the middle of like winter. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. nice. I, oh. I, I just had them in the freezer and I thought, oh, these have to go. I don't need these anymore. But I just let them sit to see if it would still be good. And it was. I mean, yeah. once it's frozen, it's frozen. So obviously, it's best to do it within a month or two, I'd say, of freezing the tomatoes. But what happens is it breaks down all the cells in the tomatoes. And then it just really speeds up the process of making the tomato water, which, you know, when you have a lot of tomatoes and you're also making things like the heirloom tomato tart, for instance, you're going to end up using like half of every tomato. So why not cut up the scraps, the mm-hmm. end pieces, mm-hmm. the the cheeks at the top, put them in the freezer, like you would chicken bones for stock or whatever, and then make tomato water when you have enough tomatoes or like gazpacho, whatever it is. So I do try to weave in these kind of low, you know, no waste ideas into the book, but I didn't make it like a major part of every single recipe, but they're woven in there. And again, tomato water is something that I think everyone should try because it's completely no effort. It helps to have some cheesecloth, but 
other than that, it's very low tech and it's really good. And I have two recipes that use it. As we're coming out of winter, I'm just like salivating over here for this <laughs> sort of refresh and, oh, yeah. In the Arborio stuffed tomatoes, mm. in the head note, you talk about the Muriel Johnson book, The Cuisine of the Sun, and I have that and her Cuisine of the Rose. These are just classics. The, yeah. the 70s, 80s, but there are no no photos in this book uh, in right. these books. And your headnote says back then you had to use your imagination when reading a cookbook. And <laughs> obviously this has changed a lot. I mean, cookbooks just demand so much. And I it just it makes me think forward as a stylist and photographer, um, as cook, recipe developer, do you think about how your photos will age in like five, 10, 15 years and how not wanting them to look dated? Yeah, I don't know that they will because they're pretty kind of classic. I mean, I grew mm -hmm. up in the sort of Martha Stewart uh, ecosystem. So I think that's like kind of I go back to that what it, what I think is fairly classic kind of food photography. Um, I think some of the stuff we are seeing now is what's going to look very dated. I'm sorry, but, you know, they, because they're like, oh, wow, the 70s. Cool. And um, I don't think it always does so much favor to the food. I mean, yeah, maybe the photos are kind of cool, but I don't find that style makes the food look very appetizing. And I think that that kind of style will fade. And no, I didn't actually think about it. <laughs> I just honestly <laughs> just do. I just do what comes naturally. Yeah. I wasn't like, I, you know, when, when I'm taking a food photograph, you're actually leading me to a, a good point. I am just trying to make the food look as enticing as possible mm -hmm. because I want someone to make the recipe. I'm just trying to bring out that sort of yum factor, the delicious factor. And that's why, I, you know, I get pretty close to a lot of the food. And I mean, I, I really love the cover. And you shot that too, right? I did. I did, but yeah. not like that. She zoomed in on a photo that I had shot. Sabelle Grandjean, who's to, who I, I hired as my designer, she zoomed in and I just love that that's what she picked when I saw it I knew that that was actually when I shot this I the cover when I shot this recipe I knew it was the cover because I mean who doesn't like seeing a lot of heirloom tomatoes so that's the heirloom tomato tart which yeah, yeah. I can't wait to make that because you put goat cheese in the crust which is really intriguing to yeah. me yeah. but it took me yeah. a moment when I saw that cover I thought oh it was a separate shot and then I was flipping through and it's like Exactly what you said. She zoomed way in. Right. So, I mean, it, it looks like food. It doesn't just look like I put some tomatoes because you can see the salt and the pepper and the oil. And so, but I love that, you know, it's really hard to like pick one dish. What goes on the cover? Yeah. It's very hard to um, choose what is representative of an entire book. And look, everyone has gone through this, right, with their covers, which thing is, should be on the cover. So I love that this sort of is not any doesn't seem like one thing. It just seems like... Vegetables. Yeah. And tomatoes, especially, which everybody loves, right? So actually, that that was a good question. And wow, you really read my book, Molly. Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I got to say, one of the things that I love about doing this podcast is it inspires me to read these books. You know, I'm not going to talk to you, you know, ask you to spend time with of us if I, if I can't spend the time on your book. And I just, it's, uh, it's re-inspired me around cookbooks. I have to say that in a, in a very big way. Wow. Well, it's a great, I, I'm going to be like, like Jesse Sheehan and, and tell you more than once how much I love the podcast <laughs> and how much, how many people I have told about it and how very useful it is to any writer, anybody who's working on a cookbook. And mostly for me, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. It was just really great to hear other people's perspectives, the four of you and other um, guests that you've had, because, you know, everyone kind of does it differently. So for me, it just most of the time just confirmed that I was doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> or gives you ideas for other ways to do it, right? Like, right. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah for sure. I mean, I think your recent episode on titling recipes, I was like, literally about to close the book. And I was like, Oh, no, I hope I didn't do everything. You, like fall into the cliche traps, which I, I'm sure I did here and there. But, we all but, do. Yeah. Cliches for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. But it's really been uh, a great companion for me during this past year. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Susan. I'd actually love to know if, if you're doing anything differently for promoting your book this time. It's definitely a little different because, I mean, budgets, it, it, you know, look, promotion, how much of a quote unquote tour you have you know, really depends on the budget and your publisher and how much 
you know, faith they have in you to sell books. Like I was about to uh, go on tour um, back in 2020, March of 2020. My last book, Open Kitchen, came out on March 3rd of 2020. So we all know what happened a week after that. So I didn't really have a backup plan because everybody was scrambling and scared out of their minds. So it wasn't a good time. There was no pivot to a digital uh, alternative because people, uh, we had uh, all these in-person events uh, scheduled. So this time it's pretty East Coast focused and virtual. I am doing quite a few in-person events, but I'm not really traveling like I would have been uh, unless it's on my own dime. Like if I say, yeah, I'm going to go to LA and I'll pay my own way and, and my hotel, they'll organize some events for me. But so I have, you know, I have my Substack newsletter now, which is useful, I think, yeah. for promoting the book, potentially more useful than Instagram, which is less reliable than ever. I think that my cover reveal posts got you know, was seen by some small fraction of my Instagram following. So it's kind of disappointing that Instagram can't be a better tool for promoting your book, but I'm just doing everything I can and everything I'm told to do. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a little bit taking it a little bit easier in a way. I mean, I'm definitely working to promote the book, but I'm also just kind of sitting back a little bit more and because I know that no matter how hard you work it doesn't make that much of a difference in the end I hate to say that do you think and maybe that's not true well okay no it's not I mean I think you have to do all of the things but if your book isn't going to sell doing more of the things I don't think helps that you much. think it's like the I book like make the best book or, I do yeah. mm -hmm. I do I think that some people call it an X factor, whatever it is, good timing, the right book at the right time, the right cover. I mean, you know, I could be wrong because I know that pre-orders make a big difference. So, you know, I've been doing what I can to push that along. But yeah, I just, I don't know. Do you, that's like a whole nother podcast, it's right? It's a whole nother conversation. And it's something that I think we just have to find our own comfort within it because it's, I don't know. I agree with you. Like, and especially going through what you went through, where you had a basically an entertaining book come out, you know, when the <laughs> pandemic hit. Like, that just if that teaches you anything, it's like we can only control so much. Yeah. So exactly. we we do what exactly. we can. We make the best book we can. And yes, we put ourselves out there. And we, like you said, we do yes. what we're told. But I don't know. And I'm I think I'm much more in line with you on this. And I think other people are have a greater appetite or energy toward trying every single thing they can. But in the end, does yeah. it does it matter? I don't know. We've seen examples where it doesn't right, <laughs> over and over again, right, too. Right. So. It doesn't always move the needle that much. Yeah. So yeah. I'm definitely doing everything I can and using all of the resources that I have. I'm not that kind of person. I've done this enough that I know you have to put the time in as right. the author. Right. And I'm definitely doing that. I'm devoting my summer. I'm leaving my schedule open to promote the book. And, you know, but I just, it's just, it's hard to know. And, you know, yeah, I sure. I hope that that people just realize they need this book. Buy the hell out of it. it. Yeah. That it'll sell on yeah. its own. But I think it's hard. I think it's hard when you're kind of in the middle like I am. Like I'm not, you know, I don't have like a giant Instagram. Yes, I've been around and you could say all kinds of nice things. But, you know, I haven't been like a, a giantly selling author. So, you know, I hope this book does a little better than the last one. That's all I can say. Oh, it's well-timed. <laughs> People want to eat more plants, more vegetables. Well, that is for sure. So I do think it's the right kind of book at the right time. I do want to stress that it's not a vegetarian book, mm -hmm. even though it is mostly vegetarian. Yep. Almost, I would say it's 98% vegetarian, but I don't want people to think it's vegan or, or strictly vegetarian. It's, I say it's a vegetable book for everyone. And vegetarians will, will love it, but it is for those people who want to learn to love vegetables more. <laughs> it's a very cookable book. I will say that. Very cookable. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for spending time with us. Congratulations. And yeah, we can't wait to keep cooking from this book. Good luck with the launch. Thank you. I'm so honored to be on your podcast and I'm excited. Thank you for listening to Everything Cookbooks. For more episodes and ways to contact us, go to our website, everythingcookbooks.com. 
The show is also available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Any books mentioned in the show can be found on our affiliate page at bookshop.org. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Abby Circatella. Until next time, keep on writing, reading, and cooking. Bye.